Hello, everyone. If this is your first time listening or you are a regular Be The Bridge podcast listener, you're in for a treat. Today's conversation is a part of a series of conversations we call Take It To The Bridge. In our Take It To The Bridge series, we do a deeper dive into societal and cultural issues. Our intent is to expose our listeners to opportunities for the reassessment of their own values and perspectives. In other words, listening, learning, leveraging, and lamenting. Without further ado, let's jump into this special Take It to the Bridge episode of the Be the Bridge podcast. Be the Bridge, be the Bridge. You are listening to the Be the Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. How are you guys doing today? It's exciting. Each week, Be the Bridge podcast tackles subjects related to race and culture with the goal of bringing understanding. But I'm going to do it in the spirit of love. We believe understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial unity. Latasha Morrison is the founder of Be The Bridge, which is an organization responding to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world. This podcast is an extension of our vision to make sure people are no longer conditioned by a racialized society, but grounded in truth. If you have not hit the subscribe button, please do so now. Without further ado, let's begin today's podcast. Oh, and stick around for some important information at the end. Okay, Be The Bridge community, family, I have a treat for you today. Um, I had to lean into some of uh, my friends and colleagues that are part of the Be The Bridge community and team and staff uh, that actually have been with me since the beginning. Um, (laughs) I have um, Elizabeth on here and Gina. I'm going to let them introduce themselves, but we're going to be talking about something Um, For many of you, it may be a little uncomfortable because it is controversial, but it's something that I want to understand in a deeper way. And and so I always like to go back to the beginning, to the root, to the history. And we talk about that, you know, in order to understand the present, we have to understand the history. And that's why it's important that we do not erase history. We don't have to edify history. We don't have to put um, history on display and um, in a memorial, um, but um, history has its place for us to understand what is happening today. And um, as it relates to the conversation that we are having on guns and gun violence, um, I wanted to really look at the big picture and um, where, where a good starting place for this conversation. So um, I'm going to let um, just Elizabeth introduce herself and Gina, and we're going to really have a conversation um, of friends talking. And you, we're going to model this and how we would in a Be The Bridge group. And uh, we just want to hopefully from this conversation, you can get a deeper understanding of the history of 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 guns and 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 how in a lot of this um there is white supremacy behind um the um the increase um of gun and gun manufacturing in in america and what can we do about it um how can we be uh this is not a podcast against guns at all um a lot of us own guns but we're talking about um making sure that we make um healthy conversation healthy decisions about gun ownership 
And and so uh, we're not going to get into the details of that, but um, I do believe that um, military style weapons that um, any citizen should not have them. This is for protection for our military and also for our police officers um, when people when they're outgunned and outmanned when they come into situations. So we may hit on that a little bit because I just said it and it may need to be a part of the conversation. So I want you guys to introduce yourself and then we're going to jump in. Okay. Thanks so much, Tasha. My name is Elizabeth, and I live in Kansas City with my husband and four kids. And I have been with Be The Bridge since uh, before it was Be The Bridge, <laughs> since, since before we actually got incorporated here. I know we just celebrated our sixth birthday. Uh, but I, I used to do a lot of the online community management work, uh, but now I largely work with the training program. I, I create content and teach fellow white people who are wanting to understand how in the world do we get to where we can engage bridge building in a healthy and educated way, especially for a lot of us who grew up without really getting to have open conversations or understand what was going on around us. So I'm looking forward to this conversation today. I think there's a lot of history here that can shape how we make sense of the current gun debate. And I have found through educating thousands of white people over the years that when we're able to apply that lens of history, we're able to really shift our perspective and make some more informed decisions. Awesome. Well, my name is Gina Fimble, and I have also been with Be The Bridge um, since the beginning, even before it was an official 501c3 nonprofit organization. Elizabeth and I actually have a lot of similarities. We both educate white people. We both work in the training department. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think it's been a heavy, um, gosh, a heavy few years, right? But even in our recent in our recent past, um, in the past few weeks, we see the ways that gun violence is just ripping at the fabric and the soul of our country. And so I think we have to take a pause. And so I'm glad we're talking about this, Tasha. Great. And, you know, one of the things that we like to do and Be The Bridge is we don't want to kind of look downstream and see um, and try to provide solutions from downstream. We always want to look upstream and beyond to see um, what is the cause of this problem? How do we prevent this problem and how do we remain proactive? Um, and so that's um, one of the things. And what we found now is when people are given information, factual information, uh, when people are given data and history um, and context around things, we see people make better decisions. And I think that's some of the pushback where sometimes there are people um, that are in power that try to keep um, information from us or um, try to create fear around um, information and history um, in order so that we don't know that full truth because they do know that um, people will probably make better decisions um, for that. And we saw that, um, you know, just in um, a lot of things that happened in 2020, we saw um, the needle moving, we saw heart shifting, minds changing, um, and that created a lot of fear for a lot of people. Um, and so I think we're here again um, with this conversation. And um, I'm going to get, I actually want to get um, Elizabeth, you to start us out. Because one of the things that I was thinking when I, you know, 
I'm always about solutions and how do we be proactive? I'm not about following something when it's in the headlines or when everyone is talking about it because when everyone is gone, those families are still hurting. Those families are still recovering. People are still trying to put the pieces together. Families will never be the same again. And then I then I'm also trying to think of we, you know, just just in this recent issues we've had um, in Buffalo, Uvalde, Dallas, um, and I think it was in California. Like Just with all these issues, families will never be the same. And then to see just the double down of there's nothing we can do. To me, that it's just, I was just left really speechless that the loss of life, um, Guns have more value than the value of people. And that's when I know that, you know, guns, people idolize them. And even seeing Christians idolize them, seeing signs like God, <laughs> um, God, um, guns and country, you know, um, just and Christians touting that. And so um, that's a whole nother conversation that we'll have later on about white nationalism. <laughs> but um but I, I when I when I'm left perplexed at the um just the the heart position um of our country, of brothers and sisters, I I want I think it opens the door to have a deeper conversation. And so we wanna have a deeper conversation. So I always kinda like to to connect the dots and um you know, and I'm seeing this. I I saw a, a post with a African American guy, um, and he said, "You know, I'm I I have guns, um, and I'm willing to to lay down, you know, as many guns as they recall, um, uh, you know, if needed." He said, "The only reason why I have guns is because I don't understand why white people are buying so many guns," <laughs> and he said. I'm going to continue to buy guns. I'm going to continue to buy guns because I don't know what they're preparing for. And so I want to be prepared. If what are we preparing for? You know? And he said, but I don't even like guns. And, um, and I, in talking with a lot of African Americans, um, they feel the same way. And I'm not, I'm not speaking for all of African-Americans. I'm talking about just friends that I've had conversations with that, you know, everybody feels like, okay, gun is a protection. That's one thing, but, um, killing machines, like that's a whole nother thing. And, um, for me, I inherit when my father passed, I inherited, um, a gun and I decided to keep, um, that gun, but I'm just going to be honest, deep inside of me, there's it's 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 for I say for protection, but it's also like okay, so why why is this why is everyone infatuated with all these guns? And so you don't you know it's like is everyone planning for a, an apocalypse or something? And uh, you know and you know and 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 I and I found myself having those same thoughts also, and so I wanted us to talk about it, and I was like why. And it's not to say there are there are you know there are people of color that are part of NRA, but we do understand that the NRA responds differently to white people who are gun owners than people of color. We saw that with um, Philando Castile. Um, you know, he was a 
licensed gun owner and was shot at when he was telling the people that he had a gun, doing everything that he was supposed to do. And never a word was spoken to him. And we can name several situations. So there is like a, a racial lens through all of this. And I want us to kind of talk about that. So people like myself who are trying to understand this, um, so that we can have all the information and really understand the history of something because a lot of times we don't understand the history of something and then when we understand it we're like oh now that i've been given the context i understand and you know what i choose not to take part in this you know um so that could change minds when we talk about this so elizabeth help us to understand this um big picture elizabeth is a researcher (laughs) Um, she is known also as the professor around here. Both of these women, when I need something researched or, um, something documented, these are two women that I can call on and they will have it pages of information, (laughs) pages and pages, scholarly documents ready. (laughs) And so, um, um, Elizabeth, can you just kick us off? Yeah, absolutely. So I think what's really helpful to understand is to actually go way back to the founding of our country. Um, you know, when the Constitution was was written and ratified, part of the way that the South agreed to ratify the Constitution as it was, because there were these these factions, well, there was lots of factions, but the main ones were Federalists and Anti-Federalists, people who were pro a strong federal government and people who said, no, this needs to be left up to the states. Um, We need to really focus on states' rights and and have a very weak central federal government. Um, And it was the South that wanted that weak federal government because they realized that around the past, around the ratification of the Constitution, some of the colonies that were becoming states were starting to abolish slavery within their boundaries. And so there was fear that if there was a strong federal government, they would be able to have a say in the slave owning in the South. Um, and they, the South didn't want to give up their enslaved population. Um, you know, within the first hundred years of the U.S. being a country, over half of South Carolina's population were enslaved Africans. So we're talking about a really large population of enslaved people. So they were very focused on letting the states continue to have the rights to um, enact whatever laws and policies they needed to, to maintain control of that enslaved population that was regularly um, participating in uprisings. There was an active underground railroad. There was a lot of fighting back against slavery by the enslaved. And so part of that was um, the Southern states realized they, really the the advantage they had over the enslaved, the way that they could keep them enslaved was through gun ownership, was through the use of violence. And so gun ownership was pushed in the South. It was also pushed in the West where um, there was a, you know, the, the federal government was giving away land to white men as long as they would stay living on it and keep the native population off of that land. And again, the way to do that was through gun ownership. It was through violence. And so when we're trying to get the Constitution ratified, part of how we got the South to agree to that was to promise was that Madison promised that a Bill of Rights would be the first thing that Congress did. Um, and part of that Bill of Rights would include the Second Amendment. So the Second Amendment at its core originally was included to appease the South, to say 
we're going to let you arm yourselves. Um, we're going to include this concept of the militia, which the militia was at that time was largely about um, squelling enslaved people from uprising, um, as well as participating in fugitive slave capture. So it was really the role of the militia was all about control of the enslaved. So really at its heart, the Second Amendment is about anti-blackness. It's about white supremacy. That was why it was put into the Constitution to begin with, was to maintain control of in the enslaved population, as well as to be able to continue to take away land and rights from Native American people and make sure that those rights stayed with the, that this would become a white nation where white people had the power and the control and that power and control was going to be achieved through weaponry, through the ability to enact violence on other populations. Wow. And so I know some of you are listening. You're saying, okay, and, and really, honestly, everything goes back to slavery because of how this it country does. was founded. Um, we have amendments that basically have to say that I am not three-fifths of a person, you know, um, all the rules, all the regulations, there are so many things that came into play and in how we function as a government now, how the Congress functions, how the Senate functions. Um, a lot of this comes out of our history of slavery, and we have not changed those systems. So we have a lot of broken systems that we've built a nation on, and we didn't go back and restore and bring redemption to a lot of those. We've made some amendments or we created acts, but we haven't even put things in place that can permanently change, um, um, you know, laws and the way we think, um, and so I think that's important to the conversation. Thank you for um, that history. And maybe even for some of the show notes, uh, we can put some of this research in there. So if people want to take Absolutely. a um, deeper guide, um, deeper dive into some books and some different things like that. Um, Gina, I would love to hear you add, before we start talking about some of the themes, um, I would love to hear you add, um, just add into some of this what... Um, what Elizabeth was talking about and, you know, maybe just some of your personal history. I know growing up in the Appalachian um, 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 mountains, um, I was just hearing from a friend of mine that grew up in Alabama and Arkansas. And, you know, it's just these, you know, what be the bridge. We like to say the things that are unsaid. You know, and let's let's really pull the covers back on truth and get down to it. And um, basically the thing she said in her family, it was like, you got to own the guns. You got to have guns to protect your land because really black people are going to uprise against us. And we have to be able to protect our land because they're going to come and take and steal our land. And so when we think about that, especially after the Civil War, there was this fear in the South that there was going to be vengeance. But, you know, um, you know, besides the slave revolts um, where people were fighting for their freedom and their choice and their God-given dignity, which was a justified <laughs> revolt um, um, against a system of oppression, um, the one 
thing that you have never seen in this country, um, especially specifically from African-Americans, is this act of of collective vengeance against white people. Um, we wanted to be free and left alone. <laughs> and still today, that is the sense of give us equity and equality. Everything you get, let us get it. And uh, create systems where we all flourish and leave us be. Nobody is trying to take your land and your, and you know, you know what I'm saying? No one is seeking vengeance, but there's this, there's this fear. And we see this and even in our, um, even in our partisanship today and a lot of things that this whole replacement theory that people are going to replace you or people are coming and they're going to outnumber you. You're not going to, and it goes down to, it comes back to power. Um, and so we haven't seen that. So I think, you know, in her expelling, just exposing um, what her um, what her family really thought in the sense of why they own guns and why they were buying all the guns. It's like they were preparing for some type of race war that, you know, it's those things that spoken inside a family, but not necessarily you would never verbalize that outward. Um, did you experience some of that too growing up or, um, you know, yeah, any of that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, I grew up in Appalachia, the heart of Appalachia, and there's definitely an ideology of God, guns, and country. There's a lot of hunting where I grew up. Um, but I love this conversation because the more that I have researched, the more that I have read, I see the ways that um, gun ownership is tied to colonization and our violent history. Um, guns were definitely a tool of colonialism. Um, and you mentioned the Haitian Revolution. Uh, my daughter is adopted from Haiti. And so part of my work has been to really understand uh, the history of Haiti. And I have been so um, surprised by how much Haiti is actually connected to our history. And the reason why is because the Haitian Revolution of the enslaved people played a central role in the liberation of um, Latin America from slavery. And so, those um, in power in America really wanted to, in the United States of America, that um, what we now know is the United States of America, they wanted to silence that Haitian revolution. They wanted to, um, they because they were feel, fearful. So there was an act of silencing of the Haitian revolution um, and Europeans really became masters at what we would call the art of killing at a distance. Um, and they're able to do this through sophisticated weaponry, um, through the industrial development of firearms. I mean, that played a very important role in colonization. And so, you know, when you think about men or women at war with each other, um, killing becomes so impersonal and so, um, you know, it's just, you're not looking someone in the eye before you take their life, right? And so, um, you know, non-Europeans didn't have access to industrial manufactured steel that was needed for sophisticated weaponry. And so the fact that um, enslaved people were able to liberate themselves from the tyranny in Haiti was astounding, right? And so, 
the ripple effect of that across the world um, was was evident. And we we uh, the ruling class in America was just very scared of that. And so even our history, you know, sometimes I just think, do we even want a common history, right? Like Haiti's history is actually very relevant to United States history. Um, you know, yes. So I think that um, for me, in terms of Personally, I just remember my boys were in the first grade at the time of Sandy Hook Elementary School. Um, and in approximately four minutes, um, the shooter shot 154 bullets. He killed 20 children and six educators. Um, he used a military style weapon for that. And it just felt at that time, I mean, I was raging, I was crying. I saw my sons and those kids if we weren't going to, if we didn't do anything then, um, are we going to do something now, right? Um, we have to understand that our thoughts and prayers are not enough. And so I don't think that violence is acceptable in any form. And what we know is that more guns does not equal more safety. In fact, more guns uh, typically shows us that we're less safe. Um, you know, I believe that black people and Latino people and people of color in this country have a right to live and be free and to go to the grocery store without losing their lives, right? Uh, we have a man, Michael, uh, or I'm sorry, John Crawford, I believe was his name. He was a 22-year-old African-American young man who went to buy a BB gun in Walmart was seen by an off-duty police officer and was executed in Walmart. And so we have to wrestle with who do we tag, you know, who who do we say that it's acceptable to carry a gun? A lot of times for white people, we look at them as patriots. Uh, we see people of color carrying a gun and they're tagged as criminal. Um, and so we just have to have these tough conversations I realize that I've given a lot of information. Hopefully oh, that's some food for conversation. That was good because um, getting back to that conversation, um, you know, just you mentioned John Crawford Crawford, and um, I think that was in uh, we can we can correct this, but I want to say it was in Ohio, um, but that I think he was in an open carry state. And I also want to um, and he was killed within seconds of having um, the gun while he was like on the phone. And so, um, and I, I don't think the officer was ever held responsible for that, but we can look at the details of that. But we're, we're saying there's, there's a, there's a different America that, um, brown people live in, black and brown people live in than what white people live in. And so one of the things we want to see how this conversation is being shaped and um, really, um, the system of whiteness is really shaping this conversation. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, we want to, I wish there was a day when we didn't have to discuss these systems, but they play a major role. And so we do not take a colorblind um, position um, to this conversation because this country is not colorblind, not in the policies, not in the laws, not in within the Constitution, not in anything is this country um, colorblind. And so, um, you know, 
so a lot of times as Christians, we, you know, we want to say, you know, there's one race, but <laughs> hopefully we can get there one day. Um, but right now, um, as it relates to the, the racialized society and we live in, that is not a truth. And, um, and so we have to speak into this truth. And one of the things that, um, the themes we talked about and how this conversation has been, um, shaped, I wanted to talk about, especially these first two we have written down, um, you know, both historically and presently, who should most want to be protected? Like when we look at the history of this country and we see what has been done to um, Asian Americans, you know, um, especially Japanese Americans and Chinese Americans, um, when we look at what has been done to to African Americans, when we look at what has been done to natives, if any, listen, we should be the ones. <laughs> we should be the ones when we talk about you know being afraid of vengeance. Well, we see that happening. Um, we see vengeance being taken out on us through policies, um, through rage, through um, anytime there's some advancement as it relates to equity and equality. Uh, we see that uprooted uh, within policies like normally the very next term. We see actual um, vengeance being taken out on us as it relates to knowing our history, um, you know, talking about our history, um, people wanting to erase our history and act like we're not a part of American um, history. Um, we see these things happening all the time. And if anyone should really be arming themselves, it should be the brown and black people in this country, you know. Um, and but yet, you know, we see here that it's majority white men that are buying majority of the guns. Um, and and so let's talk about that. I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about this whole good, bad binary that really makes no sense because we've seen that played out in several incidents where there were some good people with guns and they were murdered also. Right. Right. So, you know, and that can, this idea of um, like who really deserves and needs protection and who's actually inciting vengeance. Um, if people want to go down a, a research rabbit hole, um, we can look into things like the, during Reconstruction era, what what laws were passed surrounding gun ownership. I mean, in Florida, um, during the Reconstruction era, there was actually... Um, laws were passed that white militias could at will raid the homes of of black people and confiscate any weapons they could find because again gun ownership was seen as a threat even even after emancipation gun ownership continued to be seen as a threat because there was this ongoing fear because in opposition to the idea that people were just a product of their time and that's why they were okay with slavery, um, they were okay with slavery because it made them a lot of money um, and because they had white supremacist views, not because they were a product of their time. They knew post-emancipation that the amount of vengeance that was deserved um, could be enacted if the black population was armed. Uh, and so there were things like the black codes and such passed to make sure that that didn't happen. 
And a big um, key for that, too, was we know that during Reconstruction, the federal government um, did some enforcement in the South to try to um, reconstruct this country, to try to put this country back together. And, and so when we think of that, sometimes we think of, um, I think the image that comes to mind to people is white federal soldiers in the South, but there were actually black federal soldiers in the South. And that really didn't go over well for white people, because not only was it uh, black people with guns, but it was black people with guns and authority. And so that was not going to go over well. And so most states um, engaged either in just, they would first try to diplomatically have those regiments removed because we had segregated regiments. Um, and when that didn't work, um, enacted just horrendous violence against those, against U.S. soldiers. There was not this sense of patriotism when it came to anti-blackness. Um, patriotism went very quickly out the window when it came to supporting our troops when our troops were black. Um, but that that idea, that need for, for gun ownership just didn't go away and really continued to be pushed um, during the civil rights movement and even during um, the, the, you know, the era of terror, as we call it, the post-reconstruction pre-civil rights era where there were thousands of lynchings, lynchings happening around the country, there was a big push. It was, I mean, even Ida B. Wells is quoted as saying, that you know, that black people needed to acquire a gun to you know give themselves the protection the government refuses to give, and so there, the problem was though that that didn't actually give them safety. It actually put an additional target on their back. Um, being known as a gun owner in your area could could mean that the Klan ended up at your door, that you or your family ended up lynched because there was a need for control. There was a need for power and guns were still seen as the way to acquire that. Um, and so this idea of, um, you know, only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, that was not at all the narrative um, when it came to the fact that, you know, white nationalists, which was the bulk of the population, honestly, um, were happy to be the bad guys with the guns and to keep black people who were, they were seen as bad guys, not because of anything they had done, but because of the color of their skin. And so that narrative even comes from that, that it was a good guy with a gun literally meant a white guy with a gun and a bad guy with a gun meant a black person with a gun. And so that narrative was pushed from that time and it's continued on even as we have stripped the racial terminology out of it. We haven't stripped the ideology from it at the same time. And so we can even see how as recent as um, there were actually two cases in, in 2018. One was um, Jamel Robertson, who was a security officer. I mean, he even had like, you know, the the Navy uniform with like the word security written in like yellow or, you know, bright green on the back or something. There was, um, there was a shooting event at a mall where he was working um, and he tackled the shooter um, you know, he was an armed security guard. He tackles the shooter, subdues him so that no one else gets hurt, and police arrive on the scene and they murder him in in cold blood without with his security uniform on while he still has the the shooter who was an active shooter pinned to the ground. The police kill um, the black security officer because, you know, they arrived on the scene and it and it didn't matter it, this whole like who's the good guy and who's the bad guy goes all the way back to where that ideology started, right? It wasn't about who was a good guy or a bad guy. It was who was the black guy in the situation with a gun. 
he had to be disarmed. That um, is, in, I, 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 want to, I want to pause there. If you've been enjoying and learning from the Be The Bridge podcast, we invite you to join us in this work. You can support and sustain our mission as a recurrent partner at bethebridge.com forward slash give. You can also help spread this word of bridge building by supporting and really sporting our apparel. So if you haven't gotten your Be The Bridge hat, sweatshirt, all of the things, let's take the message to the street. Visit our online store at shop.bethebridge.com and make sure we're spreading the word about all the work that Be The Bridge is doing and will do. At Be The Bridge, we're doing the work to empower people and culture toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial reconciliation. And this work is only possible because of the generosity of bridge builders like you. So thank you so much for those of you who are listening and sharing our podcast, sharing our posts, those of you who are giving to this work um, that's helping us create resources and material um, that will transform hearts. Um, So join us at bethebridge.com forward slash give and let's continue to build bridges together. Thank you so much. We see this all the time, you know, especially in clips that are going around social media where um, just recently there was a situation where there was a fight in a school and um, a young, small, actually a small, you know, um, brown guy. I don't know if it was African-American or if he was, um, you know, um, Latinx. I couldn't determine that by the video, but it was an altercation with um, a white guy and they were fighting and um the you can tell the the larger guy the larger white guy kind of started he put his hand in his finger face and he pushed him you know just doing what sometimes kids do when they handle problems you know and so the cops come and break it up and immediately they push the white kid who was much larger on the chair you know like and then both of them tackled the smaller <laughs> brown child to the ground and put him in handcuffs and all the kids are watching it and saying it's because he's black it's because he's black and they knew he didn't start it but we see that situation and scenario all the time so this is without guns so when you talk about a good person with a a gun i know in any situation i'm not going to try to break up anything because i do know it depends on what color the people are how things are going down i'm going to be the one this this um this probably shot or manhandled um so anyway i just wanted to um insert that um because we see even that hearing, a lot even hearing you say that tasha is just so painful that you have to live in that reality and i just want to acknowledge that yeah I, I mean, I think about that. I think about that when we talked about how we would stand up for people, um, you know, when all the stuff was going on in the airport and, um, you know, especially, you know, when we're dealing with the conversation around Asian hate and, you know, all these things. And I always think through what will I do in this situation? How would I use my voice or how would I do this or what's the best way? I try to think through these things. So when they happen, um, I have a plan. I'm a planner. And so, but I, in my scenarios, I think through, first of all, I'm a large black woman. 
and how that comes across. And I'm a large, dark-skinned black woman. And I know the racialized lens that people look at me through. And so this is me, Latasha Morrison. They don't know who I am. They don't know I've written a book. They don't know that I have an organization. They don't know that I'm probably... you know, a nice or kind person. They don't know those things. What they will see is this large black woman. And um, I'm very mindful of that and how I move and operate through this society. And so that will impact how I respond, how I defend and how I step up. And so I'm, I always think through how would I handle this situation? Because I, you know, I am a justice person and I will you know, say something or do something sometimes before I even realize it. Um, when when I feel like someone's rights are, um, if, if injustice is happening, um, I use my voice. I am a nine, but I have an eight wing. <laughs> and so that, and, and, and some of my friends have seen it when it, when it comes out. Um, and so I'm very mindful of that. And I have to plan. I have to have something in my head. I have to think through scenarios, um, just so that I know that I can stand up for justice, but also how do I uh, be safe and come home in the midst of it, so. Wow, Tasha, thank you for sharing that authentic um, wrestling that you have and even fear that anyone would have being in that position. Thank you for speaking that and naming that. Well, I was just thinking about the day after the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and I was out in my community here in Wilmington, North Carolina, and there was a truck in front of me at a stoplight, and he had two flags flying on the truck, and one flag was the United States flag, and the other flag had a picture of an assault rifle, and the wording on the flag said, you can take this gun from my cold dead hands. And just seeing that the day after those children were murdered, I'll be honest, I'm a little fearful for our country right now. I think these are conversations that we have to have. Um, When we think about our nation, a historical scholar, and I'm not remembering the name right now, but he said, a nation is not an act of creation, but a process of growth. And we are in a process of growth when it comes to race, when it comes to gun violence, when it comes to immigration. And so we have to start having these conversations. I think as Americans, we would prefer that uh, genocide begin and end with Adolf Hitler, right? Um, Or what happened in Rwanda, because it's distant, it's over there, it's not about us. But the reality and the truth is that genocide has happened on our own soil, in our own nation. You know, our bid for independence was, um, you know, we had these ideas of freedom and democracy and equality for all. But the reality of that was difficult to reconcile with this idea of genocide and colonization, which happened. And we just don't mourn that in the proper way. We don't memorialize in the proper way. We don't even tell those histories. And we think about justice, you know, what does justice require? Well, justice requires us to ask a lot of questions. Justice needs to hear every side of the story. And so 
you know, the, these are really overwhelming things. Even I get overwhelmed by it at times. I think that we just need to do something, you know, whether we work on pieces of legislation, whether we work on uh, voting, you know, whether we work on shaping the culture in our spaces and places that we're called to, we have to start getting brave. This idea of take this gun from my cold, dead hands, um, particularly just strikes pain in my heart because I look at um, the the leading cause of gun deaths um, is not mass shootings, although mass shootings are um, a way to instill fear, to instill power. They remind me of the era of lynching, honestly, this idea that I can keep this group subjugated if I have them live in fear. And that's why we see the the predominant group um, who, who leads those mass shootings are white men who have been convinced that they that something is being taken from them or that they are not being given access to all the rights and privileges that should come with their white maleness. But at the same time, um, the, this take this gun from my cold, dead hands, the leading cause of gun death is suicide. So there's a, there's a reality to that, right? Like that, that breaks my heart because there's a truth to the fact that the, the, that gun is more likely to kill that man than it is to kill someone else. The person who is clinging to that gun for their sense of safety, for their sense of power, for their sense of control, um, and clearly feels that need, like that gets something from it if it's powerful enough that they're flying a giant flag off the back of their vehicle, he's actually more likely to kill himself with that. He's more likely to actually have that gun taken from his cold dead hands. Because we know that when it comes to mental health issues, which are often brought up in the wake of mass shootings. Um, you know, I look at, at Greg Abbott, the governor in Texas after Uvalde, who said, you know, this is, we're not going to take people's gun rights. We're going to look into mental health. Well, with within weeks prior to Uvalde, Abbott cut $200 million from his state's mental health funding. So it's not about mental health. Um, if it was about mental health, we'd be talking deeply about the fact that gun ownership increases the odds of suicide exponentially. And not only increases the odds that you'll attempt suicide, but that your, that your attempt will be successful. Because most other routes of attempting suicide have a, have a failure rate that's significantly higher than a gu than gun's failure rate. It's actually fairly easy to shoot your own self and not miss, right? Whereas if you're attempting an overdose or you're attempting some kind of self-harm, there is a lot larger window for intervention. But we're not we're not talking about that, right? We're we're wanting to say that mass shootings are about mental health when they're not. We know that those with mental illness are actually more likely to be victims of gun violence than perpetrators of gun violence by many many times fold over. But it's a it's an easy way to to push the issue off on something else that they're also not funding. But I think we have to also look at the roots of, of white supremacy in that concept of blaming mental health because 
when we can when we can push it off on mental health, there's already stigma against those who have mental illness, and so it's easy it's easier to put an additional layer of stigma on them than to take personal responsibility or to see this as a broader societal need. We know that ideas around ableism and looking down on those who can't, um, you know, be as fruitful in a capitalist society. We look down on them because of the roots of white supremacy, um, tie your worth to your output, to what you bring to the world, how much you can produce. So it's easy to pass um, pass these, this off on mental health, even as we don't address those things. Um, but also mental illness is really just kind of, we've throughout history, we always just kind of shift our language slightly to, to use coded words that really mean something racial. Um, and so when we say, oh, this person was mentally ill, it's really just a coded word to say, um, this was an individual person with a really individualistic problem. And so we're going to try to come up with an individualistic solution rather, which is that uh, individualism is a, a core tenant of the culture of, of whiteness. Um, and so if we can, if we can shift it to that, then we can take it off of our collective need to all be engaged um, in this, in this work of, of what does it look like to ha- to live in a society where we have more guns than people in the U.S. and yet the answer that we're given to the problem of guns is well, surely we just need more, right? Like if we mm. had more individuals armed, and I just want to say, like, at what point are there enough guns, right? Yeah. Like if we're not safe when there is 1.2 guns for every person, man, woman, and child in the U.S. and we're and we're clearly not safe. We're clearly dying by tens of thousands a year to gun violence. How many more guns until we're safe? How many, do I need two guns a person, three guns a person? (laughs) Elizabeth, I have to add right there too. I was just Mm. listening to NPR last week and they made the point that um, part of our immigration issue is that the it's it has to do with the production of guns Mm. a lot of the guns that are in south america were produced and manufactured right here in the u.s and so we do have some culpability we have responsibility and culpability in this Mm -hmm. it's all connected um but thank you for sharing that i love that elizabeth i was I was just thinking, you know, uh, and I'm going to be real vulnerable here. You know, I was like when you mentioned like how the scapegoat is mental health and we say that, but there's no funds, there's no policies, there's no legislation that has been passed, you know, um, you know, even prior to Sandy Hook um, to help if they if, if they're saying this is the cause, people are cutting that budget and you see people without the resources. I was talking to my aunt who uh, my cousin, who's actually a nurse in a, a rural community, um, um, Native American community um, in North Carolina. And she just talked about just the mental um, health crisis there. And she talked about, you know, them not having trauma therapy therapist or PTSD. There's no one at the hospital. The hospital doesn't employ anyone with that. And she said that, you know, the only resource they have is online. Um, and just the, the need is so great. And so this is like a cesspool waiting for something like this to happen. And the same thing with Uvalde. Um, there, you know, some of the reports that I'm reading is that there, there aren't any trauma counselors like live 
you know, trauma counselors in that area. And um, I know that the um, um, some of the um, the the Congress people have been pushing to get, you know, more funding for um, their health center there. And so you have all these kind of communities around America who are undersourced and underserved, you know, and we're talking about um, mental health, but we're not putting any money into it. And it's just a scapegoat because we're not doing anything about that either. Um, and I'm just thinking about even myself after these shootings and really before my mom since the shooting that happened in Colorado, I think it was Aurora, Colorado, in the in the movie theater. Uh, my mom has not been back to a movie theater since then. Okay, so you're talking about secondary PSD, uh, PTSD, uh, where she has not been in the movie theater. When I go to a place that's crowded, my thoughts and you know, and I may be wired different. Um, I don't feel like I'm a scary person. I I feel like I, I want to move and operate in this world, but I want to move and operate with wisdom. And I went to a concert, um, you know, um, the other week. And the first thing that I do is say, if something happens, where the exit, where, where do I exit? Um, how am I going to get out here? I'm, and I'm not saying this verbally, but I'm thinking this in my mind. Um, you know, I, I, I was in um, the grocery store. And then in the midst of being in the grocery store, I remember like, you know, just looking at people, all of this, these things, the trauma that ensues that we are experiencing, um, being a part of this violent culture in America, um, this weighs on someone. I'm saying if it weighs on someone like me, where, um, you know, on Memorial Day, I'm hearing like, um, firecrackers and different things going off and this was you know really that the very next weekend after one of those shootings like my heart started racing you know in the midst of that and so I'm like if this is happening to me and I'm you know I'm more removed from Buffalo or Uvalde which I'm not in that sense um, I can only imagine what is happening um in the minds and heart of those children and in the minds and heart of those, those that those family members, people in Buffalo, like how intense this is and what type of resources are they are going to be available to them with the broken systems of healthcare that we have in this country. And so, you know, and so that's what I'm saying when we talking about upstream conversation, you know, I'm just tired of the okie doke. I'm tired of the lip service. I'm tired of the lies. I'm just really tired of it. And it's like, I need Americans to wake up and really understand what is at the root of this. What is at the root of this violent culture we have here in America, where it's not happening in any other country. And yes, they may have knives, but I, I tell you one thing, an AR-15 will kill a lot more people than a, a person with a knife. You know, and then when when they've had situations in other countries, they've changed laws and they have not had the same situation. So, I mean, we consider ourselves um, bright people. You know, we have American exceptionalism, um, but we're we're outdoing every country, every developed country, you know, um, what you would call developed country. In this, it's like when is enough enough, and when will we wake up? But does does the 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 heart um, and the um, uh, of of this 
supremacist type mindset have you to your core where you can't even see you you're so blind where you you can hang up a sign that says you know god guns and country and you think god is behind that we have lost our our ever loving minds and and it's like and it's like really time to speak the truth into it. we have lost our minds we idolize we would say that there's nothing that could be done after all of this when we're seeing children that were blown to bits 10 year old 9 year old children blown to bits and we're saying that there's nothing that we can do about it we have created an idol in guns and I, and right now I'm speaking to people of faith I'm talking to you like if you value that gun more than you value lives, then something's wrong. Something's wrong with your faith. Something is wrong with your faith. And um, and if you think God is backing this, or if you think that you know Jesus, I saw something where where Jesus could have defended himself against the Romans <laughs> before they crucified him, if he would have had a gun, like exactly. That just goes against the very nature of the Christ we serve. But I'm telling you, I don't, I don't, I don't know if this some of this westernized Christianity is even Christianity at all, you know. But those are things that are being communicated in some pulpits across America. That's for another conversation. I know I don't went on a rant, but let's get back to this, you know. And I, I mean, there's I wanted to go jump into the second amendment because we hear this a lot you know my second amendment right my second like 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 first of all you're talking about we speak to it as a very individualistic standpoint and i'm thinking like okay so i don't have a second amendment right <laughs> like you only you have a second amendment right i wanted to um to talk a little bit about that like you know like it it should be for the greater good of the country. Like my my citizenship is just not tied to me, but it's collective. It's tied to other people. So I wanted us to talk about that and just the ownership and the responsibility we have to one another because we are connected. You know, what ultimately impacts you um, Elizabeth impacts me. What ultimately impacts the people in Buffalo impacts me. What ultimately impacts, you know, the um, the people at Sandy Hook impacts me. Although we may not know each other, we are part of this community and this society um, together. So I just wanted us to speak into that Second Amendment a little bit. The way the Second Amendment reads is that it begins with a well-regulated militia, right? And so I do think we have to look at that collective aspect of that. I don't think it was necessarily all about the individual. Um, and also it was a different ball game because there were not military style weapons then, right? You couldn't walk in and kill 50 people in it 20 seconds. <laughs> Absolutely. And it had it was to put powder in the thing. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. While you getting the powder in, I can get away, you know? <laughs> right. I guess for me, it just boils down to, sure, you say you have this right, but my friend Latasha has a right to go to the grocery store and not be executed. And to me, that trumps that. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, 
Gina, as you're talking about the, you know, the first part of the Second Amendment, it it makes made me think back to the Supreme Court deliberations in um, who was U.S. v. Heller about 2008, when um, it was that was really the first Supreme Court that court case that really decided to try to dissect the Second Amendment, and. I swear to you, these attorneys were literally diagramming the sentence and arguing whether what the comma meant versus a semicolon and what did I, you know, it was, it was almost to the point of um, ridiculousness, I would say, particularly given the fact that there was um, a complete lack of racial context being given as to why the Second Amendment was written in the first place, um, especially from those who um, consider themselves more like constitutionalists or original. I think it's like originalists. There's you know, there are all these different terms. This idea that oh, we have to stick to the original intentions of the Constitution. It was like, well, the original intentions of the Second Amendment were to control the enslaved population. I mean, within twenty years of the Revolutionary War, there was actually a, an act passed that required, I believe you had to be between the ages of 18 and 45 and a white man, you were required to buy a gun. Required because there was there was so much racial tension and there was so much, um, you know, there was a fear of foreign invasion. There were all these things. So this idea of original intention is is interesting to me, given the the context of the origin of our country. But we couldn't buy a gun. So go and repeat oh, that right. what you said again. Um, you that white men were required to buy a gun, but brown people couldn't buy a gun. So that lets well, you know not who just, the law was for. Yeah, not just couldn't, but were like there were specific laws passed to say that you can't you can't buy a gun and you can't mm-hmm. even buy a gun you can't even own a gun some states even as um particularly in the wake of the revolution in haiti there was so much fear that the enslaved in the u.s were going to sort of catch that that fire of liberty that realization that you could overthrow your oppressors um that it it went to not only could you not buy a gun or not own a gun it used to be that your master could give you one of his guns to use for either to be the one who was on a slave patrol or to be hunting or to do whatever. And even that became illegal because there was so much fear of black people having guns. So this debate about, you know, what did the Second Amendment originally mean is curious to me. I'll say that. I'll say it's curious. Um, and, And usually the argument given for like, well, you know, you know, now we have semi automatic rifles and we have AR-15s and we have all these different things. It's like, well, it's because this is supposed to protect you from a tyrannical government, which is not what the Second Amendment was written for. But I mean, well, in part it was because the idea was that the tyrannical government would be the federal government getting too much power and being able to pass laws regarding slavery. That was the idea of a protecting from a tyrannical government was protection from laws limiting or ending the practice of slavery. But even as even as people want to use that argument today, um, all I have to do is look back at video footage of Ferguson. There were literal government tanks rolling through the streets and talk about seeing a, a, some government overreach. Um, you know, we had a it w- that that was mere hours from my house. It was it was a war zone, and 
that's not who was out protecting people from a tyrannical government, the same people fighting to be able to keep their automatic weapons or to keep their military-style rifles. Um, They weren't there protecting anyone. In fact, instead, we saw within years of that, um, we saw Kyle Rittenhouse, who, who was able to show up at a Black Lives Matter protest and walk past police with his rifle. I was actually at um, a very peaceful protest here in Kansas City and, and had the same thing happen, except for um, it was two young men. I, I would be shocked if they were even 20 years old, but had rifles strapped to their backs, military-style rifles, um, and they were just wandering through the crowd, draped in American flags. Um, We begged the police to do something. It felt very unsafe to have them there. Um, The police instead, when they decided to leave, gave them protection and walked them back to their car. Um, later that night, there was actually a police car that was set on fire. And of course, the, the narrative was blaming Antifa or Black Lives Matter protesters or whatever. Well, the, the police put out photos of the suspects. And it was those same men that I had begged them to protect us from were actually the ones who later that day tried to further the the negative narratives around those fighting for black rights by burning a cop car. And it was the, the police that ushered them to safety so that later that night they could do that because it was never about whether they were allowed to own a gun or not. It was about the color of their skin that deemed them safe. I can guarantee you that if Black Lives Matter protesters showed up with the exact same guns strapped to their back, they wouldn't be treated the same way by police in that situation. There's no way. There's absolutely no way they would have been treated the same way. And, and, And we know that. We've seen that play out. We saw that play out, you know, California passed all kinds of gun regulations after the Black Panthers started open carrying and, and started a, a smear campaign on the on the goals and the aims of the Black Panthers in that community. It was Ronald Reagan that signed several laws into into place with the backing of the NRA um, after the Black Panthers showed up at the at the state house um, armed and ready to defend their liberties and and the fact that the state was not protecting them from violence, but was actually enacting that violence. So we've seen throughout history from whether it was during times of enslavement, willingness to pass gun laws to restrict gun ownership. um, The same happened during Reconstruction. The same happened during the Civil Rights Movement. There have the government has never shown a lack of willingness to pass gun reform if it meant restricting the rights of Black people to own and utilize weapons. Yet, white nationalists who um, have been the perpetrators of more violence than this country will ever be able to atone for are the ones that the government has never shown a willingness to enact really hardly any sort of protections from for, for those in this country who don't ascribe to that to that same narrative. Um, and, and there's been an unwillingness even to protect white people who choose the si- who don't choose the side of white nationalism. Um, there, there's lots of examples of where white people stand alongside people of color throughout history and have have their rights start to mirror those of the black people in that situation very intentionally because white supremacy has a goal and it's not for white people to deflect from it. Um, but we have passed lots of gun laws. Um, <laughs> 
But they've largely been to expand gun ownership um, and gun rights and things rather than to have a goal of, of protecting people, which should yeah. be the government's goal. We've, you know, yeah. we've passed things like stand your ground and castle doctrine and open carry laws. And all of those mm-hmm. have been shown to not, um, those rights are never in actuality given to black people. Um, yeah. Black people are and not allowed know, to stand their they ground. <laughs> They're not yeah, allowed to protect know, their castle. We know they don't apply to us. <laughs> right. Because we, we've right. seen it, you know, with even in Florida with the, the young lady shooting in the air you know, trying to protect yes, her from domestic, domestic she was yeah, a domestic violence victim and she's in jail yeah. for 20 years. And the yeah. same, the same state attorney that helped put her in jail for 20 years, a matter of weeks later, used that same law to protect a white man with a gun. Just hearing Elizabeth speak makes me think about the three evils that Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of, which was racism, poverty, and militarism. And Honestly, I can't even imagine our country without militarism, without military-style weapons, without guns. Um, I want to imagine our country without that, but because it has coexisted so intimately, it's really difficult um, to do that. But I do think, especially when we're thinking about ideology, uh, when we're thinking about the ways in which we speak about guns, the ways in which we allow guns to exist in our country, I do think we've made a mistake of um, thinking that military superiority is a moral superiority. And in the United States, we're guilty of that. There's no way around it. Military uh, superiority does not equal moral superiority. And in fact, um, the United States, as we all know, you know, we have have made some grievous sins in our country um, that we have yet to reckon with or atone for. So I just wanted to bring up some of Martin Luther King Jr.'s work around that um, because it's timeless. And he was speaking into something that he knew would be trouble for us in this country. And I think he and he was speaking from a, a person of faith as a pastor. And I think um, the, that is some of the reasons why, you know, we have to remember that um, um, Dr. Martin Luther King, when he um, was taken from us, when he was murdered, he was the enemy of the state. You know, so, um, you know, minds have changed for some around around this. Um, others still have a very racialized view around it. Um, but. I, I I was looking here at uh, some statistics uh, where we were talking about uh, the U.S. has 40 percent, 46 percent of the world's guns, 46 percent. Um, and in 2020, um, 40 million new guns were sold, 40 million. And, um, I, you know, I even know, like, you know, people in my family who um, never owned guns that, you know, bought guns and, you know, and uh, one of my cousins, you know, um, collects guns. And, um, and I was like, why do you have all these weapons, you know? Um, and, and, you know, he, he actually blatantly told me, I'll stop buying guns when they stop buying guns. I was like, who is they? He said, white people, when white people stop buying guns, I'll stop buying guns. And, um, and it's just like this, 
this this does not have a you know a good ending you know and and like you said it's heartbreaking and it makes you very nervous and and scared and just to be honest i'm gonna be real vulnerable here you guys um you know as we're recording this we're coming up on juneteenth and um you know i was you know some some friends and i we were looking at um things to do in our area for juneteenth and i'm afraid to attend some of these things you know, um, just because um, I know that evil is real and that is the reality. And it's not to say like I know people say, well, you know, um, God has not <laughs> given me a spirit of fear. Um, but but when we talk about of love and a sound mind, that's wisdom and some things I'm applying wisdom to and really just not giving the enemy any foothold you know it's not to say I will probably go and do but I'm just saying I, I just want you to 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 really these are things I have to think about living in America these are things that burden me and um you know I don't have any children so I can imagine even what the level of that is for you know families that are having to send their kids into schools and all the things you know um and um and so some of the things I I'm I'm thinking about too is I'm thinking about even Ukraine as they're in war and how they're having to carry on with their life in the midst of war. Um, so I, I, I'm leaning into that as a, a way of strength, you know, um, and, but it's just all of this stuff is just so fresh. And, um, and, you know, even with my mom, the area that she lives in, you know, the flags that, that she sees every day and, you know, um, you know, she doesn't want me out at dark, she gets nervous when I travel. Um, you know, I recently had to tell, um, um, a friend, um, you know, talking about like, you know, why I don't travel by myself or why, um, you know, there's certain things we're putting into my contracts, um, as a way of safety, because people are mean and people are not well, and sometimes they don't have good intentions. Um, and even those who who claim Christianity and um we I've had friends whose reputation and name they've just been lied on in this space and um saying that they said things that they didn't say um and like just even sometimes when they're traveling and speaking fearful at their life and speaking at a college or fearful for their life and speaking at a church and these are just things and and so and we do have a right to be fearful because we look at all the people who were doing the things, the type of work that we do that look like us, many of them met death, you know? And so exactly, that's a real reality. And so, um, but that, that is what we live with day to day. So when we're doing this podcast, you know, when we're having this conversation, um, you know, this is, this is not just, just words, you know, this is us trying to, to back into, to get people to realize, to get people to wake up, to get people to understand, to get people to understand the context, you know, um, honestly, so that, you know, and I don't know another word and how to say this, that so that we can live, you know, you know, this thing, this thing weighs on you and, you know, and I, and, 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 
You know, and I don't know if people really understand that. Um, and I know some of these things are done to evoke fear. And that is what it does. But my resistance in this is to tell the truth, is to expose it, is to educate. And that's what we would continue to do. So I thank you guys for joining in that resistance and locking arms with me today where sometimes when we don't know what to do, we can have a conversation. That's a starting point um, in all of this is having a conversation so that that conversation can change minds and the changed minds of people change policy and systems. And so um, that is that is my hope. Um, with with this conversation, but I I um I wanted to you know when we look at I, you know when we look at the um, NRA because this comes up a lot with the NRA and I wanted to you know like who is the NRA who are the gun lobbyists like the intentions we know that at the end of the day they make money. And I think, you know, one of the things why I wouldn't want to um, buy a lot of guns is because I don't want to give a lot of money to the gun manufacturers and all all of those things. Um, um, But this is also not a just this is something that needs to be bipartisan because we've seen even some of these laws on both sides of the aisles. I want to say that. um, um, um. Automatic rifles. I don't want to say this wrong, so y'all can. Um, I looked up some history where um, um, semi-automatic the the ban on those were lift. It was lifted by Clinton. I want to say. So the um, the ban against um, the what was it the automatic rifle or assault rifle uh, ban? Um, all these. Yeah. I know AR does not assault, stand for assault yeah. rifle, but it, exactly. which is. Um, but it doesn't. It, it doesn't. was. It was passed. It was passed, but with a sundown clause, so that it automatically would end at some point unless um, Congress acted to reinstate it. And Congress did not act to reinstate it, largely because of the lobbying and, and work of the NRA. But um, upon it, upon it, you know, sundowning essentially, um, there there was a, an increase in purchase of those guns and an increase in use of those guns. Of course there was. Like, you know, there's often this um, response of, well, if we, you know, if we keep good guys from getting guns, then bad guys will still find a way to get them. And it's like, well, maybe, but also that relies again on that narrative of good guy with a gun and bad guy with a gun, which doesn't actually hold water and has really racialized implications. And we know that's just fundamentally not true that, um, that, that it's only bad guys with guns committing the violence. Um, like we talked about issues of suicide and things, but a lot of these mass shootings are, are carried out with very legally acquired weapons. Um, and so to say that those, men, largely, um, would simply have found a different way to get them. It's like, okay, maybe, but I'm okay with making it harder. <laughs> I'm okay with, I'm okay with putting barriers in place that, you know, will eliminate some of these mass shootings, that will eliminate some of these gun deaths, that will, um, you know, things like 
putting a waiting period on from when you can, when you go into purchase again and when you can actually take it home. Laws like that are actually shown to reduce lots of deaths because oftentimes, um, especially suicidal ideation is, um, tends to come in waves and be fairly short lived. And so if you don't have a means of suicide available there, um, at your ready disposal, by the time you can acquire that oftentimes suicidal ideation passes. So we know that those waiting periods drastically reduce um, suicide deaths. And we also know that they reduce some of these mass shootings as well, because oftentimes they are this idea of like a crime of, of passion of like getting super riled up, going and getting the gun and then going and committing um, the murder. And that's what and so has happened, th- right, Elizabeth? Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that has happened um, as you speak to this. That has that happened in um, Uvalde. Like this was in twenty four hours. He purchased a gun and used it. And I think um, I don't know about the case in Buffalo, but I know that was an eighteen year old kid. This other one was an eighteen year old kid. And I do know that when I go in to get medicine at the um, when I, I I take Sudafed, and when I go to get that medicine, I have to sign off. I have to go to the pharmacy. I can't even pick it up in the aisle. I have to go, and I have to sign off, and I have to initial, sign my name, show my driver's license, and if, if it comes up that I bought this within a certain period of time, I will be denied getting Sudafed. Um, right. in this country because of the addiction to meth, because of the um, um, drug use, which I don't complain about that. I'm not upset about that. I understand why I have to go through that. And that is to keep some people safe. And, I, and I'm okay with that because I'm connected um, to, to that. So I'm okay with having to wait for my Sudafed or having to sign or show my driver's license for that. But we cannot apply that same type of system as it relates to gun laws. And, and what we saw even in, in Texas is um, some of the gun legislation that um, the governor passed um, would have red flagged this, this kid because he had had um, an incident of threatening um, the year before. Um, I think there have been some um, when he was in high school, there also had been some um, issues with um, violence towards um, animals and cruelty. And so when we think about that, when you're at a time when we're seeing so much violence, what in your mind besides greed? And I don't even know the other word would say that the the way forward is to even have more guns and to loosen restrictions where an 18 year old who cannot uh, rent a car, um, who cannot have consume alcohol, who cannot take Sudafed, <laughs> you know, basically can go out and buy a military style weapon and that type of ammunition within 24 to 48 hours. Something is wrong in this country. And something is wrong with people who back that. And if something is, if, if something is, is, has you holding so tight to power or to money, mm-hmm. like that is something that it's we broken. really need to be, that is broken and it's really concerning. And um, I, I was seeing in our notes here that um, after, um, you know, you say much of the civil rights activists who were um, 
who were out um, and their lives were threatened, homes were bombed, um, you know, um, who were jailed, all of these things um, because, you know, some of them chose not to carry guns because they knew that would be an excuse to kill them. But also Martin Luther King Jr. applied for a concealed um, carry permit after his home, home was bombed and then he was denied, you know, and so um, <laughs> wow. that... You know, so when we even think about it, even shows us who the gun laws are made for. Like, yeah. we see the racialized thread in this. And this is what we need to get you to see where everything comes back to our racialized society. It comes back to this and who holds the power. And um, when we talk about supremacy and superiority, and that's what we're trying to get people to see and to understand and connect the dots on. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I say when I do training around the system of whiteness that we've built in the U.S. is that at the end of the day, and you mentioned this, Tasha, you mentioned money and greed. But so much of the story of America is about the control of power, money and labor. And when it comes to the NRA, there is no doubt that they have poured in millions and millions and millions of dollars to senators who are going to be voting for um, laws that make it easier to get guns. Um, you can go on to BradyUnited.org, which is an excellent organization along with Moms Demand Action and Sandy Hook Promise. These are organizations who work all year long on this issue and have lots of great information. But they have the list of senators laid out who gets the most money from the NRA. And I mean, at that top of the list, $13 million the NRA is donating to Senator Mitt Romney in Utah. You know, I can look at my state, North Carolina, the NRA has given him $6 million, Senator Richard Burr. And so we can't be naive on this issue anymore. I, you know, I don't know the, the history of the NRA, but I know that they are about the control of money and power. Um, and when gun laws, laws are passed, they see it as getting less money, less profit. And so, um, but, you know, hope requires us to take action. And so I don't want to leave, I don't want us to leave this conversation with everyone feeling so hopeless, but I want us to understand that we do have power. We live in this country. We can decide as a community the kind of community that we want to live in. And that's where we are. We have to call our senators. We have to write our senators. We have to just get, you know, allow ourselves to have a basic education on this issue so we can talk to our neighbors about it, so we can talk to our pastors about it. Um, we have to take action, right? We can't, um, this is not something that we can bypass anymore. One of the things we talk about at Be The Bridge is this idea of spiritual bypassing um, when it comes to racism, and the same principle applies here. You know, it's our thoughts and prayers. We're outraged for a couple of days, but then nothing ever changes. It didn't change after Sandy Hook. It didn't change after the shooting in Florida at Pulse nightclub. But my prayer is that it will change after Uvalde, that it will change after what happened in Buffalo. And so um, that's what my work is right now. My work is finding out 
What can I do in my local community? What letter can I write to my senator, to my representative? Um, you know, what can I do to help in this? And so that's what I hope that all of us <laughs> will be asking those questions. Those are great questions to, to ask. And I think we can um, type that up as far as some um, action steps. Um, as we get ready to close, Elizabeth, um, I would love to hear, like, what are the things that that you're hopeful for in this conversation and to maybe give um, three action steps that people can take, you know, because you can, what we notice in this work is when people feel hopeless, they don't do anything. So what good is for it for me to do anything or say anything? Um, If we do it, you know, if if it's, it's bigger than me, but what we've seen is that when people use their voice, when people hold people accountable. We've seen it even in other countries when people come out in masses, I mean, by the millions and protests, you cannot, I know there are more people that are thinking like this than we know. And um, there are more um, good people, (laughs) you know, that are really, um, um, I would say just oriented people that are, um, just looking for something like, what do I do? You know, um, what do I say? Um, and I think one of the things, as we stated, is starting by educating ourselves on the issues. Um, what is something else that you would, um, would you say, um, Elizabeth? Yeah, in terms of three steps of what you could do, um, outside of what Gina mentioned with really pushing our legislators to, to do something about this, um, you know, a lot of times there's a, a push at the national level. Be sure you're talking to your state reps as well, though. Um, a lot of state laws, there are many states who have, um, you know, Connecticut comes to mind, California comes to mind. Um, I know there's some others, though, that have passed some some gun restrictions and some gun reform where they said, we're still going to ha- let people have the right to bear arms, but we're going to we're going to be more careful about this. We're going to be more selective. We're going to make sure that we are prioritizing safety. And has that ended all mass shootings and all gun suicides and things? Not a chance. There's no legislation that will. At this point, we have millions and millions and millions of guns out there already. But what it's done is it has lessened them. And so we can look at sort of piecemealing together some laws and solutions. So look into, I'd say first thing, look into what's actually worked for various states and push your own state to do likewise. Anything that will will help um, sort of end this epidemic of gun violence. But there's a few other really practical things. Um, There are some organizations and I can put some things in the show notes and things, but um, push for both your school and your pediatrician's office to offer up um, safes and locks for guns and ammunition. That has been shown to help significantly to make sure that kids don't get their hands on guns. Um, Gun death is the leading cause of death for children um, as of 2020, that's brand new. Um, And one of those causes is because kids are getting their hands on guns that have been left unlocked or unloaded. And so you can actually push to have your school and your pediatrician offer those for free, no questions asked. Um, And some pediatricians now are also starting to have that be part of, you know, at your child's physical, one of the questions is, are there guns in the home and how are they stored? Push for that. That's a 
simple. Mm-hmm. You don't need a single, you don't, the NRA doesn't have to have a thing to do about that. You can, you can increase the safety in your own community that way. Um, and with that also opening up the conversation um, with friends and with family, um, you know, before your kids are going to someone's house, are you asking them if they have guns and how they're stored? Kids are curious. Uh, kids play with toy guns. Kids play video games with guns. And sometimes those are try to be pointed to as the reason, but often it's, it is the unlocked, unsecured gun that's actually the problem when a friend is over and, and kids get curious or they try to show off to one another. Make sure that when your kids are at other people's homes that their guns are secured, that they're unloaded and that they're locked and that there's no way a child could ever access them. Um, but also I think as much as anything is that um, when these big mass shootings happen or when there's, you know, sort of like we've had recently where there's a whole bunch in a row and, and anxiety and high is high and fear is high and people are sort of just lobbing insults at one another across political lines to, to model what it is to be a bridge builder in that moment as well, that um, part of Part of racial bridge building we know is to be able to have vulnerable, um, historically informed, nuanced conversations about race and racism in America. Let's embrace that same mindset, that same sort of path forward with this debate too. What would it look like to, instead of just lobbing insults and um, letting our anxiety play out on a keyboard on the internet, what would it look like to instead be really informed people who understand this historical background that are able to engage with nuance, that are able to embrace the reality of what we're up against here and be able to have actual healthy conversations about this. I think that's where we're going to see um, this issue start to be able to be depoliticized. If we're able to say, I don't, it's not about what the Democrats are pushing and the Republicans are pushing. I want to be informed. I want to know what works. I want to push for research so that we know what works. And I want to be able to talk to whether it's my friend or my neighbor or the city council meeting or, or wherever it is that we're talking about this and be leading the way and showing our heart and mind and spirit of bridge building in this conversation too. That's so good. I think um, the push for research is key. And I know that some of the um, some of the research that came out of Parkland, Parkland is some of the results uh, where, um, you know, having uh, more officers in schools and, um, you know, the research indicates that that is not the solution, but the solution is more so having more counselors, having more career planning, more um, um, people that students can talk to um, about issues. Um, those are some of the, um, the better solutions that we've seen. So I think we have to look at that research. And I think this is a really healthy conversation. I think this is just one conversation. Um, I think this is the beginning of this. There's so many layers to this. Um, and I think, you know, even out of this, you know, Be the Bridge, we're all about equipping. And I think this could also be a part of our um, training academy that um, because as I'm looking, there's this whole section that we really didn't get to go over, really breaking down from um, 1967 to 1970. Um, I think those are some key areas where you see um, the Black Panthers in California and um 
um, in the open carry. And then when Reagan was governor, um, what he enacted and then how you see some of those things um, shift in 1968. But you see those things shift as a result of the passing of the um, Voting Rights Act and, um, you know, the Civil Rights Act and um, immigration reform and all of these things. And so uh, um, you see the reaction of that is this whole um, um, black, white binary you see in 1968. And then you see a lot of the um, the shift in the NRA um, um, becoming more anti-gun. Um, reform. And so um, I think there's a lot of history there that I would want us to dig into, but we cannot do that on a podcast. Oh, I'd I go think, for another um, hour if we, yeah, at least if we were to get into <laughs> exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah, that post-civil rights, that, right, that post-civil rights movement era where there yes. was, you know, there was a lot of post-MLK being uh-huh. murdered, a lot of black yeah. people in the streets, and that created yeah. white fear and a, and yeah. a white backlash and grievance yeah. response. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and honestly, and think, uh-huh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I'm still in a state of rage that the number one cause of death for our children yes. is gun violence. Like, gun I, violence I'm sorry. In I, America. As soon as she said that, I think I just got lost in the conversation because yeah. I didn't realize that. And I'm, I'm yeah. going to go cry in rage <laughs> for a little yeah, while. It is. It is the number one cause of death for children in America now is gun violence on and this is on our watch and so there is something that we can do we do have we control this like the people control this and everybody is not thinking like that and so sometimes the loudest voices are not necessarily the majority of voices so but believe me it takes only a remnant to change and um and I think we can evoke change um in this and I think this is just the beginning of this conversation there's a lot more that we can discuss with this and we're going to do that you know in um a, a deeper series on um some of the cultural um views that we have um here in America so you know what what type of things you know um uh, we this is definitely a deep lament even as Gina just mentioned just the lament of um that the number one cause of death for children in America is gun violence. Um, that is something to really call, it should cause us to cry out to God, you know, um, to change and to redeem and to shift. And, um, and so that is definitely a lament of all of our hearts. Um, you know, but when I think about some of the things that is also giving me hope in this, is the fact that we can have this conversation, that we have a platform where we can have this conversation. We have um, an audience that we know that are listening and that they are um, learning and they are lamenting and they are leveraging. Um, Those are the things that give me hope because just as uh, we have changed and transformed and continue to change and transform. We know that our audience is continuing to change and transform. And we know that audience is part of a system um, of people, of community, um, of society that can bring about um, um, worldly change. And so um, we've seen other countries do it. Um, you know, um, we've seen um, other countries successfully do it, you know. Um, and, and although they have, um, still have some violence, it's, 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 it's very, um, 
Uh, it's lessened. It's for sure. less, way less um, than um, our country, where every day parents are worrying about sending their kids to um, to college, where we have to think about gun violence when we go to the grocery store, where we have to think about gun violence when we go to the mall, where we have to think about gun violence when we go to the park, or where we have to think about gun violence when we go to the grocery store. Um, that is a part of our daily um, thought process, and that is not normal, and I'm not going to normalize it. It is not normal, mm-hmm. and um, it is not. It's only normal uh, normalized here in America, and someone is not going to convince me that this is the way that it should be because it doesn't have to be this way. And so um, I'm hopeful that there are people who think the same way that feels like this is not normal and it does not have to be this way and we're going to do something about it. So um, call your senators, um, email, support um, organizations that are fighting this battle um, because sometimes if you don't know what to do, you can also support organizations that um, that are fighting this b- battle. And then also begin to, you know, we have to vote Um for the things that are, are, are deemed important, you know, um, you know, um, and so th- this too is, is something that, you know, I can, I consider when I go into, um, to the, um, the ballot box. So, um, these are things that we should all consider. So thank you so much, Gina and Elizabeth <laughs> for joining. Um, I know, um, Elizabeth is thinking through right now how we can, can create, a training and conversation around this. I think this is an, a very, a very important culture issue. I think we also have to look at other um, countries and what they've done, like um, Norway and um, New Zealand and um, and in Europe and different places. Um, I think we the only. I think we even surpass um, Mexico, and then we can talk about like Mexico. Most of the guns are coming from here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, but I think there's so much that we can really discuss in this to help educate people, to help um, shift minds um, and ideologies around this. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, You know, uh, and I think the greatest thing that we also do as it goes along with the action is that of prayer for for change, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and um, prayer to that hearts would change and that um, eyes would be open and blinders would um, be eliminated as it relates to um, this conversation and others. So thank you so much. This is a very long podcast. Uh, We we knew it was going to be long. Um, You know, we have information that, you know, that we can edit with this. So um, thank you so much for listening to the Be The Bridge podcast. Um, Hopefully that this information and this content would um, be used um, to bring about um, um, a shift and a change in minds as it relates to um, this specific conversation. So thank you so much. Go to the donors table if you'd like to hear the unedited version of this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Be The Bridge podcast. To find out more about the Be The Bridge organization and or to become a bridge builder in your community, go to bethebridge.com. Again, that's bethebridge.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to rate and review it on this platform and share it with as many people as you possibly can. 
You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's show was edited, recorded, and produced by Trayvon Potts at Integrated Entertainment Studios in Metro Atlanta, Georgia. The host and executive producer is Latasha Morrison. Lauren C. Brown is the senior producer. And transcribed by Sarah Conitzer. Please join us next time. This has been a Be The Bridge production. <laughs>